The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Where do you come from, Ted? From um, Originally from Mytham Royd in West Yorkshire, near Halifax. What about you, Sylvia? Oh, I was born in Boston, Massachusetts, but uh, I think I'm over here in England to stay now. Well, somehow or another, there's a meeting between Yorkshire and the United States. Um, would you like to tell us how it happened? Well, I left Cambridge in 1954, but I still had friends there that I used to go back and see now and again. And one of these friends produced a poetry magazine. This magazine just saw one issue. Anyway, I had some poems in this, and we had a celebration the day it came out. To which I came. I happened to be at Cambridge. I was sent there by the government on a government grant, and I'd read some of Ted's poems in this magazine. I was very impressed, and I wanted to meet him. And uh, I went to this little celebration, and that's actually where we met. Uh, how did you develop this first meeting? Well, I think we saw each other again on, on a Friday the 13th or something, I, uh, in, in London, didn't we, somehow, after this. And uh, then, then we saw a great deal of each mm, other. Ted came back to Cambridge, and, and uh, suddenly we found ourselves getting married <laughs> a few months later. I'd saved some cash. I'd been working for about three months, and everything I'd saved, I, I blew it in on a courtship, which <laughs> lasted about three months. How, what was the actual form of this proposal? We kept writing poems to each other, and uh, then it just grew out of that, I guess, a feeling that, that we both were writing so so much and, and having such a fine time doing it, we decided that this should keep on. Mm, the poems the poems haven't really survived. The marriage overtook the poems. Well, I was going to say, I mean, in, in none of these books of poetry is there anything, apart from the dedications to Ted, to Sylvia, which um, really I could interpret as being to each other or even about each other. Well, I think that, that all the poems that we wrote to each other and about each other were really uh, before our marriage, and then something happened. I don't know what it was. I, I hope it was all to the good. But we began to be able to, well, somehow free ourselves for other subjects. And uh, I think the dedications, at least in, as far as mine goes, I feel that I'd never be writing as I am and, and as much as I am with, without Ted's uh, understanding and cooperation, really. Hmm. That's from 1961, an interview with Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, two of the most brilliant poets of their generation. The story of their relationship without literature would be fascinating enough. Add genius to the mix and artistic ambition, and it becomes a literary story for the ages. A great tragedy. And when you add the third member of the triangle, Asia Wevel, and include that tragedy as well, Ted Hughes becomes like a man alone on a stage, standing in darkness, a spotlight on him and his pain, like a bereft protagonist in a Shakespearean tragedy. Hero or villain or, like Shakespeare's characters, something in between. But that's in their future. When you hear those voices of Sylvia and Ted, they don't know what's in store for them. They are writing poetry, like a pair of young romantic poets, except in the mid-20th century, instead of the early 19th. Next episode, we'll learn about Asia Wevel. This episode, we're joined by Sylvia Plath's biographer, Heather Clark, to talk about Sylvia and Ted 
their fraught love affair, and their creative partnership. Today, on the History of Literature. I'm sipping my coffee. Hello. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast. This is a compelling topic today. Usually I say we have a fun one for you, but there is too much sadness here to say that. Although, to be fair to the show and to set your expectations, we don't focus so much on the sadness. Once we get through the introductory part and the biographical details, our focus when our guest comes on will be on the life and the creativity of these two, Ted and Sylvia. I will set some biographical details in motion in case you're not too familiar. But really, what the topic is today is not Sylvia Plath's life or her tragic death or the debate about her legacy and the measure of blame that Ted bears for her unhappiness or the way she was subsequently received by posterity. But that moment, or those moments, I should say, of creativity when young Sylvia met young Ted at Cambridge. We're going to look at who she was as a poet and who he was as a poet, what they saw in one another as poets and as people, and how that fueled their art, if it did. Heather Clark, author of Red Comet, The Short Life and Blazing Art of Sylvia Plath, is the perfect guest to help us dive into this subject. Okay, biographical details. Do we have any housekeeping first? Let's skip all that today. Here's a quick history of these three, Sylvia and Ted and Asya. Sylvia Plath was born in 1932 and died in 1963, aged 60. She was born and raised in Boston near the sea and went to school at Smith College. Her father, a German-born professor and entomologist and expert in bumblebees, died when she was young, just eight years old. She wrote poetry early, and she showed signs of brilliance early. She also showed signs of depression. She attempted suicide. She received electroconvulsive therapy. She spent months in a hospital receiving psychiatric care. At the same time, she was exhibiting a kind of ferocious intelligence and raw emotional power that went into her essays, her poetry, and her conversation. She wrote a thesis about Dostoevsky. She won a fellowship and went to Cambridge in England. Ted Hughes, meanwhile, had been born in 1930, a couple of years before Sylvia. He grew up in Yorkshire, hunting, fishing, spending time outside. One imagines him as a kind of Bronte-esque figure roaming about the moors. His ancestors had worked with their hands and fought in wars. His parents were shopkeepers. He also showed signs of promise, and by 16, he had decided that he would become a poet. From then on, it was Shakespeare and Yeats and John Donne and T.S. Eliot and Gerard Manley Hopkins for Ted. He would write about owls and hawks and the rugged landscape he had loved as a child. He went to Cambridge to study and got a job as a rose gardener for a while and then worked at the London Zoo. Hands, hard work, 
animals, poetry. This was his life. And Sylvia Plath. He met Sylvia, as we heard in that snippet of introduction, at Cambridge. They dated for a while, and four months later, they got married. On the same day that I got married, coincidentally, June 16th, which also happens to be Bloomsday. A good day for literature fans and for young people in love. Hopeful in the spring. Sylvia and Ted wrote together and then wrote separately. We'll dig into that more. And there was love there and happiness too, but things turned dark. After a few productive years, a divide between them began to open. Sylvia continued to struggle with her depression. Hughes was not kind. They had two children together. Ted began having an affair with another woman, Asia Wevel, a German woman who had grown up in Tel Aviv, which was then Palestine, her family having fled the Nazis at the start of World War II. She was married to a Canadian poet and living in London when Hughes met her. She was a beautiful, successful woman working in advertising, writing poetry as well. Ted and Sylvia had rented their London flat to Asia and her husband, Ted and Asia were struck by one another and were soon having an affair. Sylvia discovered this, and she was struggling with her depression. Again, allegations of abuse surfaced years later, after her death. It was revealed in a letter that she had written that Ted had physically abused her, and the affair was rough on Sylvia. She tried several times to commit suicide. Doctors couldn't help. I won't recount the scene of her death. It's heartbreaking and tragic. She left behind two young children. Her death freed Ted and Asia in one sense, but in another sense it didn't free them at all. While they were now able to marry one another, the guilt and the recollection of Sylvia hung over them both. Six years after Sylvia's suicide, Asia killed herself in the same way. Asphyxiation from a gas oven. Sylvia had sealed up the doors to the kitchen to ensure that the gas didn't reach her children. Asia did not. When she killed herself, she also killed her four-year-old daughter, Ted's daughter. Sylvia had a brilliant career as a poet and novelist with great bursts of creativity, but her career was brief. Ted had a much longer life, filled with creativity as well, although his was marked by sorrow and grief and received criticism. Criticism might be too light a word. Attacks, anger, recriminations, accusations. Fans of Sylvia Plath and defenders of Plath's reputation viewed Ted as a sort of moral monster, the villain, an abusive cheat with blood on his hands. Blood on his hands twice. Biographers, considering all angles, including Ted's misconduct weighed against Sylvia's history of depression, can come down on different sides. There's blame to assign, but to what extent and what does it mean? That's not our subject today on this episode. Maybe we'll cover that in the future. Today we're going to take a different approach. Today we're going to look at the years when the creative partnership was flowering the years before the storm, 
What did they see in each other? How did it all work? And then we will add one more thing. That's in the next episode. Who was Asia Wevel? Was she a uh, the anti-Sylvia, a woman who didn't challenge Ted in any way. Maybe she was beautiful, you might think. Beautiful, but not as brainy. Someone who would keep a good home. Was he drawn to her because she was simple and uncomplicated? No, that does not seem to be the case at all. She was not Sylvia Plath. Almost no one is, of course. But she was also not a kind of Stepford wife. She was complicated too. She was very intelligent and she wrote. What was she writing? And what do we know about her? We're going to have a couple of guests who are going to help us fill that in in our next episode. So that will be our week this week. We start today with Sylvia and Ted before the chaos and the tragic ending. Young, in love, mad for each other, and mad for poetry. Heather Clark, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Heather Clark whose full list of awards and accomplishments would take me the entire hour just to go through. Heather is the author of Red Comet, The Short and Blazing Art of Sylvia Plath, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award, was shortlisted for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize in Biography, and was the winner of the Slightly Foxed Prize for Best First Biography. Mesmerizing and comprehensive, says the New York Times, exhaustively researched, a frequently brilliant masterwork, says the Washington Post, and Glennon Doyle of Good Morning America says, Quote, one of the most beautiful biographies I have ever read, end quote. Heather Clark, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you, and thanks for having me. So I gave kind of an effusive introduction because the book is so good, but also because I wanted to ask you if you felt like the bar was raised because Sylvia Plath is herself so intelligent and such an astute 
critic and and literature. I mean, she's just almost precociously intelligent and just brilliant throughout her life. Did you feel like you had big shoes to live up to? Mangling the metaphor there, but you probably know what I'm saying here. Did you feel like yeah. you had to you owed it to Sylvia in some sense to to have a biography that was worthy of her? Yes. Uh the the simple answer to that yeah. is yes, definitely. Um I frequently worried that I, I was I wasn't intelligent enough for her, mm. I guess. Um mm-hmm. I had that kind of sometimes insecurity because I just I was so aware of her her brilliance, yeah, and really wanted to uh, do her justice in in that sense of of getting the message across. Right. Here was not just one of the greatest poets of the 20th century, but really I think one of the most brilliant critical minds. Yes, I mean, right. Um, she was a real intellectual, and uh, and so I was uh, trying to write about that as well. And of course, I was writing, what, the 11th biography of Sylvia Plath, I think it mm. was. Mm-hmm. And and I my, my attitude, you know, about halfway through was just go big or go home, because, <laughs> you yeah. know, she did not have that big scholarly book. And uh, I just I wanted to do it. Um, yeah. I know the book is, is long, it's a 1000 pages, it weighs three and a half pounds. And I knew that that would put a lot of readers off. Um, and I, I guess I just made peace with that. Um, yeah. and because there wasn't a book like that on Flath and right. it, I thought it filled, uh, filled a need. Uh, so, but yes, I mean, I was always aware of her, <laughs> her brilliance and trying, trying to, I guess, translate that through the biography. That seems like what I would have felt like, uh, might be a voice in your mind. If you're thinking of Sylvia would be not just, oh, you got this wrong or, this is uh, you didn't cover enough of this, but almost like <laughs> you weren't you were too shallow. You you didn't yeah. you didn't really get at what was important here or you you just kind of skimmed the surface. Yes, I I guess that in, in a way I, I did hear that voice and it I justified my my yeah. deep dives right, right. Uh, in, in the sense that, OK, here is one of the greatest writers of the 20th century, and she really really deserves the full treatment because she's so important. And, and, uh, and I knew, again, I knew that a thousand page biography is not something that everyone is going to pick up, but I just felt like it, it was necessary. And once I, once I began writing, uh, I did have this kind of granular approach to her life. And uh, when you start writing in a particular style, it's, it's hard to stop. Yeah, right. Um, and, and I had the time. I had the time. I mean, I, I was able to work on this book full time for about eight years. And so I was lucky in that sense. I didn't need to rush it through to meet a deadline, I suppose, is, is what I'm getting at. You know, right. that gave me the time and the space to, to really hunker down. And I appreciated that. Yeah. Well, it is definitely the end product is definitely an extremely valuable resource for anyone who is interested at all in Sylvia Plath. And we know there are a lot of those people. And I'm wondering if those were other voices you kind of had in your mind as well, knowing that there are constituencies and pros, you know, some people who are advocates for a particular side or another. The Plath-Hughes relationship has been such a, a hot and, and mm. divisive topic. Has that cooled down 
a bit since maybe the the 80s and 90s? Or is that still uh, something that you've encountered as you've been working on the book and putting the book out, that people are still in camps and have very, uh, you know, ferocious views on different topics related to these two? Well, I think it started to die down a bit after birthday letters mm-hmm. was released yeah. in 1998. And and that was a best-selling poetry collection by Ted Hughes. Uh, and in, in it were sort of epistolary poems about his relationship with Plath and his memories of, of Plath. And, uh, and that was very well received. And yes, and I think in the wake of birthday letters, some of the criticism died down, uh, although there was also a lot of criticism about birthday letters itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, I think I, things have gotten divisive again because uh, Plath wrote a letter to her psychiatrist mm. uh, in 1962 detailing this fight between uh, herself and Hughes. And she said that um, she used the word beating, right, mm-hmm. I think, and and that, that Hughes basically caused this miscarriage. Uh, at least that's what she inferred to her psychiatrist. Mm. So in, in February of, of 1961, so after that letter was published, um, yeah, I mean, I think things got very, very divisive again. And, and yeah, I mean, it's a tough thing to write about. I, I published my, my second book on Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes and their relationship to each other as poets. And it's an academic book. And I really just tried to <laughs> avoid biography, actually, as yeah. much as I could in that book, and just sort of focus on their their influence on each other as mm-hmm. poets, because that's really what I'm most interested in. And the rest of it, you know, it, I have feelings about it. I have anger about it, you know, that sort of thing. But I, I'm most interested in that poetic relationship and, and the question of would they have become different poets if they had never married? And yeah. So the intellectual aspect of, of their relationship is the one that I, I tried to kind of speak uh, quite a bit about in the biography as well. Right. Well, that is actually the area that I am most interested in as well. So let's turn to that. Mm. But before we do that, mm-hmm. let's take a, a quick break and we will come back with more on the creative and intellectual relationship of Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. Okay, we're back. We're talking to Heather Clark, the biographer of Sylvia Plath, who also wrote an earlier book about Plath and Hughes as poets. You know, it reminds me, I'm endlessly fascinated, and listeners are maybe tired of hearing me talk about this, but I'm endlessly fascinated by John Lennon and Paul McCartney and Mm. the way that these these brilliant artists found one another, and then they had this, this synergistic relationship where they were working together, working apart and inspiring each other and learning from one another and competing with one another, but also collaborating. And it's pretty rare that we have two Mm. such brilliant people with such a deep artistic relationship. And it seems like Hughes and Plath are are maybe two of the, uh, you know, that you could almost put in that level from the literary world. And so why don't we... Let's tee it up this way. Let's start out with Sylvia and 
how she saw herself as a poet before she ever went to England and met Ted Hughes. What tradition was she writing in and was she continuing something or was she breaking new ground or how would you assess her as a poet in her earliest days? Well, she published her first poem when she was eight years old. Hmm. So that gives you uh, a sense of how ambitious she was Mm -hmm. as a young child. What what a strong sense of vocation she had as a poet uh, from really yeah her earliest date. And she was writing little books of poetry uh, when she was ten, eleven, twelve years old, and she would she would uh, write copy out the poems, and sometimes she would paste pictures in there and, and create these beautiful little books, which. Uh, you can see in her archives. So she was always writing poetry. And Um, as she grew older, uh, you know, she went to high school, took a wonderful uh, honor seminar with a famous Wellesley High teacher, Wilbur Crockett, who really encouraged her talent and encouraged her to send her work out to magazines, which mm -hmm. was not that usual back then in, you know, the late 40s, early 50s. So he's the one who really got her uh, on that on that path in a sense that she I think she had like 50 rejections before she was published in mm, 17. Right. But he he encouraged them to take pride in their rejections. And whenever they got a rejection, he said, this means you're a writer, you know, just send it back out. And that's what she did. And she was a real literary professional from really her adolescence onward. Yeah. Um, she she loved Yeats. She loved mm. T.S. Eliot. Mm hmm. In my book, there's a chapter on her juvenilia, and I talk a lot about Yeats and Eliot and their um, their influence on her work. And, you know, it's interesting to me because she, when she was a child and even in high school, she wrote a lot of poems that invoked nature and the landscape and were sort of almost like proto-Plathian. <laughs> there's a poem she wrote when she was 13 years old called A Winter Sunset which you read it and you, you think, yeah, that, that's Sylvia Plath. Yeah, um, yeah. It's about this skeletal <laughs> tree. and, and the, <laughs> She writes poems about the moon and the sea. And then I think she goes to Smith and she sort of abandons that style for a little while. She starts writing these wonderfully well-mannered, uh, new critical poems, and she's showing off all of these tricks, right? Oh. She can write these villanelles and sestinas, and she's so good at it. But I think she loses a little bit of, of this edge, I think, that yeah, she had. Yeah. Um, and then she goes to Cambridge and she meets Ted Hughes and, and she's writing in her diary about how she feels like her poems have hit a wall and she needs to break through. She, she just she wants to start to write in a different way. She's not satisfied with the, the kind of poetry she's written at Smith. And she calls those poems um, little. Yeah. And so it was almost like... <laughs> She goes to Cambridge in 1956 on a, sorry, 1955 on a Fulbright Fellowship, and she's looking for inspiration, right? She's yeah. she's in search of it. She wants to write in this new way, and then she gets a copy of the St. Bartholf's Review, which is this literary magazine that Ted Hughes and his friends have published in. And then, it, and then you know, <laughs> yeah. the, rest, the rest is history. Yeah. So, so I guess, you know, to answer your, your question more succinctly, as a child, I think she wrote a lot of nature and landscape poems that dealt with an emotional truth, but they kind of dealt with it in a sideways manner. And she goes to college and she, she, her style changes and it becomes a bit more formal and maybe even more brittle. And she, she almost wants to get back to that former 
style. And in a way, I think Ted Hughes helps bring her back to the way that, that she was writing mm. um, earlier on. Yeah. And did she did she recognize that the way he was writing was sort of the true her or, or close to her true self? Was she that aware of the difference? And did she... Sounds like maybe she was writing for the approval of others, maybe professors or what she perceived to be the establishment or something, or felt like she mm-hmm. needed to demonstrate that. Did she did she view it as, oh, this is the kind of poetry I was born to write? Yeah, it's it, it's complicated because I, I don't want to make it sound like, oh, when she met Ted Hughes, then that's when she that's found the her epiphany. voice. Right, um, right. You know, it's not like he was. Uh, the <laughs> the cause of that yeah but i think she saw in his poetry and the poetry of his friends something that she wanted in her own work mm. and uh they were these young men who were at cambridge at this time i mean ted hughes had recently graduated but he had friends who were still there they wanted to write a different kind of poetry from what they thought was being published in all of the major magazines they were rejecting the movement it was called the movement um, they thought that the poetry uh, being published in sort of the mid-50s was too genteel, too safe, I guess. And they wanted to bring back that more bombastic or bold rhetoric of of Dylan Thomas and you know, the apocalyptic Yates and yeah. <laughs> H. Lawrence, right? They wanted that earthier, bigger voice. More physical, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mythical and Robert Graves and the White Goddess. And and they really thought of poetry as this holy, holy. um, And Plath loved that kind of vision Mm. because she she loved Yeats and she loved D.H. Lawrence. I mean, she had written a lot about D.H. Lawrence as a a college student. So she she had similar aesthetic interests. You know, she came to Cambridge with with very similar interests as Hughes and his friends. So it was kind of like this meeting of the minds in yeah, a sense. Right. And once she read their work in the St. Botolph's Review, something clicked. And it was almost like she felt, I think, that she had permission to to write in this different way because she wasn't trying to please her professors anymore, right? Her Smith professors. Yeah. Um she was in a new place, a new country. She was uh just exposed to this new kind of uh, writing, I guess, burgeoning style of Ted Hughes and his, his cohort. So, so yeah, and and she had a hard time finding her feet as a woman mm. uh, at Cambridge. I should say, as a woman writer, because it was completely, you know, lit- the literary scene at Cambridge was completely controlled by men. All of the literary magazines were run by men, and so it was tough for her. I think maybe even tougher than she she thought it would be. So, in a way, she latched on to Ted Hughes and. Uh, these these other young men, yeah. because you know, there there weren't there wasn't sort of a band of female rebel poets posting yeah. their work in in literary magazines at Cambridge. Like there there wasn't much of that. So she she looked to the men um, because right. she didn't really have any other options. Uh, and Ted Hughes encouraged her in that general direction. He wanted her to write in this bolder voice. He wanted to tap her unconscious. He wanted her to tap her unconscious, I should say. And, right. You know, let let the poems come. And so they had a lot in common, actually. And, and that seems to be, I mean, he doesn't, for all of his flaws, uh, from what I can tell, he seems not to have viewed Sylvia as like a, a, a gadfly or a, a a young pest or something poetically he seems to have 
recognized her as uh, someone who was quite worthy and quite talented and that she could produce poetry that would be on a par with him and his friends. Yes, absolutely. Well, I believe him when he said, I knew she was a genius. Hmm. He He's written that quite a bit. Um, and he was not somebody who treated her condescendingly um, mm-hmm. in the way that she was sometimes treated by men at Cambridge. He understood, I think, almost immediately how good she was, just as she understood how, how good he was, too. And he encouraged her to kind of <laughs> give everything to her writing. Yeah. And, you know, when they moved back to America, she, she taught at Smith in, the, in 1957-58. He was the one who encouraged her to, to stop teaching and say, you know, he said, let's just try to make it as freelance writers living in Boston. Because he felt like anything that did not have to do with the writing of poetry was just not worth doing. Yeah. So he was, he was always encouraging her to spend more time on her work, to, to go deeper, to just to make it everything. Yeah. Um, and it, like I said, it was, it was holy for him and for her too. But she was a bit more pragmatic about the business side of things. And mm. she was basically his agent and secretary. And so uh, he, and he acknowledged that, that, you know, if it hadn't been for her, maybe he wouldn't have gained the fame that he eventually did. So, so he, he owed her a lot in that sense as well. Were they working on poems together at all? Were they one another's first reader? Did they, do we have evidence of edits that they made or notes they gave to one another on each other's verse? Uh, yes, they would read each other's work and more in the beginning mm-hmm. by the time. So they marry in 1956 and they have this sort of idyllic early marriage where they're always working on their poetry. They're reading each other's poetry. At one point, a couple of years into the marriage, it, it does start to become a bit suffocating for Plath. And she writes in her journal that she, she says, I'm, I'm not going to show Ted anything anymore. Mm. <laughs> um, so, right. so they, yeah. So they want to, get some space from each other after a couple of years. So she, she starts, I guess, writing more for herself. So there are edits in, in her hand on some of his, um, you know, final proofs and things like that. And she says things like, Oh, if I didn't stop Ted, he would just rewrite a, a poem to, to eternity. And, and, you know, I'm the one who tells him when it's done and things like that. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, they, they were reading each other's work and, and commenting upon it and, he would actually have her write exercises, he called them, poetic exercises. And some of her later poems were the result of, of things that he told her to do, you know, to look out the window and, and write, write this poem about a particular tree. What do you see? So he would, he would set up those kinds of things as well. And he would tell her often to read her, read her poems out loud and, and to kind of compose the poems uh, to, to meet her as she was walking back and forth and... <laughs> Right. And, and that sort of thing, yeah. Right. Um, what was no, I mean, wh- what was stifling? Yeah. What was stifling or suffocating? Was it that if she showed him something that wasn't perfect, his he would point out uh, flaws that would make it harder for her to? I mean, did she find it, you know, intimidating to show him work that wasn't yet polished, or was he giving a particular kind of suggestion, or his stance made it hard for her to move in the direction she wanted to move? Yeah, I, I think it was 
this sense that when they were living in Boston in 1959 as trying to make it as freelance writers, they were together so much mm. <laughs> and they, they lived in this tiny apartment yeah. in Beacon Hill, which was much less expensive back then. And they were in the same room like all day. And she just started to feel like she was almost writing for his approval, I think. And she felt like she needed that distance. And they were they were squabbling more, too. Right. They were kind right. of fighting a little bit more. And she writes about some of these these fights, little not major fights, but a lot of bickering. She writes about that in her journal. And, and it seems like as they start bickering more, she, she begins to think, okay, don't show any more poems to Ted. Yeah. Um, well, it seems like most people, if they're trying to keep a relationship together, need a little bit of room for themselves as individuals. And yeah. if you're, if your one safe place or your one uh, thing that you like to do is, is to write poetry and, and be alone with your thoughts there, that if that is wide open as well, and it's spilling into this relationship that you need a break from, uh, you could yeah. see where it would be uh, overwhelming to have to share that as well. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting if you go to class archives, you'll see that she wrote quite a few poems on the back side of Hughes's work. So they'll, on one side of the paper, there'll be a class poem, and on the other side, there'll be something that, that Hughes had written. So they were literally writing, oh. they were writing back to back in, in their apartment, and they were also using each other's paper. So back to back in that sense, too. So yeah, yeah you could see how that would become uh, a little claustrophobic. And I think when Ted started to win a lot of awards, she, she vows in her journal that She'll win them, too. She'll start to win. But she says, oh, I'm so glad Ted is first. Mm. Um, yeah. That's, and, that's a little scary, yeah. almost, thinking that he might be, he might not handle it so yeah. well if she were the one yes. who was succeeding more. Yes. And taking that traditional feminine backseat, in a, in a sense, putting her husband's career first. And, you know, when she found out about this major poetry prize that would be given by Harper Brothers Publishers, she sent Ted's manuscript in instead of her own. Mm. I mean, she had, she had a manuscript ready to go. She had a poetry collection, but she, she sent Ted. <laughs> she thought that he had the better chance of winning. So, you know, again, it's just taking that traditional feminine sort of quote unquote wifely role there. Yeah. It's no wonder that this relationship became so important and so public and so fraught when the details were emerging as we were moving into the 70s and 80s. And you just wonder how things would have been different for the two of them had they come along 30 or 40 years later than they did. Yeah, I mean, they were both very intense people mm -hmm. who, who sort of sacrificed everything to their writing. Mm. It was just so important to them and in a way that I, I find almost noble <laughs> yeah um that this was this was it for them just to to write to write poems to spend all of their time writing poems or uh, some in ted hughes's case uh, some radio plays that plath wrote some radio verse as well but and fiction and but really i think the poetry was what mattered most yeah and anything that stood in in the way of writing <laughs> yeah and yet, and that and that became tough when they had children, right? When yeah, I was just going to say. Yeah, that's the thing I was thinking about in particular when I said that if they had come along thirty or forty years later, I feel like 
if Sylvia had been born 30 or 40 years later than she had been, and she was in this relationship and had this devotion to poetry, she might have not felt uh, compelled to have kids at such a young age, which, you know, by the time uh, my generation came along, people were waiting till their late 20s or 30s. And she seems to have felt like her clock was ticking uh, at a very young age. And that seems to have put these additional strains on their relationship and on her poetry as well. Yes, she notes in several letters uh, after she graduates from Smith that many of her friends are already married. Mm. And there were a lot of weddings like right after their graduation. Yeah, (laughs) right. In, uh, yeah in 1954. So this is a time when women are marrying very early and having children very early. And she, she constantly feels this pressure and Mm -hmm. feels like an old maid at, you know, age 23 or what have you. It's astonishing reading some of these letters where she just feels like, Oh no, am I going to be left behind? And all of my best friends are getting married. They're having children. And, but she held out. She always, had this sense that she would not marry someone unless that person believed in her literary talent and would support her artistic vocation. I mean, she had many, many boyfriends at Smith <laughs> and none of them fit the bill. Even she, she was informally engaged a couple of times and she broke it off and she just had the sense that there was someone out there who would take her seriously as a writer. And and Ted Hughes was that person for her. But as for the children, she always wanted to have children. Uh, That's something that's sort of a refrain in a lot of her letters. And she actually writes to her mother during her first year at Cambridge. She says, oh, don't worry, mother. I won't become one of those career women. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. Because she wanted a family and she wanted the the literary... um, Career. So she, what she meant was, I'm not going to put off or, or reject a family life just to become a writer or a professor. She yeah. wanted it all. It's one thing for me to say, had she been born later, things could have sailed along. She was born mm. when she was born, and it seems clear that had she not had children, it might have really impeded the writing of her poetry, given who she was at that time. Yeah, you know, I think for me, I really appreciate her poems about motherhood. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think some of her best poems are about motherhood. And that was a subject that that was not written about very often in in high poetry. And so she and Anne Sexton and Gwendolyn Brooks, I feel like they were some of the first people who really wrote about being a mother and who wrote about it unsentimentally. And that, you know, that's, I find that it's a subject that's still, oh my God, still so sentimentalized and sanitized in our culture. And so reading Plath's poems about things like maternal ambivalence or postpartum depression, things like that, like they still feel so radical to me, some of these poems. And I appreciate it so much, that honesty, um, because it's not something that you see a lot of even today. Right. It's... Parenting in the best sense for an artist of the experience of being a parent expands you and it it's yeah. it's you are you go through these very human 
emotions that are sort of outside of yourself. And it's also doing things you didn't know you were capable of and feeling love that you didn't know you were capable of and the feeling of responsibility and dependency, you know, all of that being tied up in it. You know, Plath seems like she was willing to go to that place and then be our ambassador from the land that she was discovering there. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. Yeah, I I love when she writes about this this anxiety that comes up as a parent trying to keep this small human being yeah. protected from the world, and uh, which you know, as a mother, I I really relate to that. And so, yeah, it's just something I I appreciate in her poetry, and it's it's a strand that you don't necessarily think of when you hear the name Sylvia Plath, but for me, it's it's one of the dominant themes. Right. Okay. So my last question about Sylvia and Ted as poets, is there a way, you know, if we think of someone like Lennon and McCartney, we can kind of say, Mm. well, you know, John was kind of the, he, it's a little oversimplified to say he was the words and Paul was the music, but they did seem to have this influence where John could give a stamp of approval on a lyric. And meanwhile, Paul would add, sort of inspire John to have melodies that were living up to the ones that Paul just seemed to come by so naturally. Was there anything in their poetry where they admired one another and sort of said, oh, I wish I could get more of what Ted can do into this poem? Or if if Ted would say, oh, Sylvia is very good at doing X, and I've tried to do more of that in my poems. Yeah, I think early on in the marriage, it was more class sort of reading the poems in Ted Hughes's book, The Hawk in the Rain. Mm. That was his first his first book, which won the, the Harper's Contest I mentioned previously. When she was writing to other people about this book, she said things like, I want to build an altar to this manuscript mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and worship <laughs> and worship it. And, and I mean, she just said all these kind of slightly hyperbolic things about this manuscript. And she I think the depth of perception in those poems mm. and the way that they approach nature yeah. and animal life and the moods, you know, that kind of stormy, brooding, almost Bronte-esque mood that you find in The Hawk in the Rain was something that really appealed to her. In my second book, The Grief of Influence, I have chapters about how they sometimes write back to each other, how one poem by Hughes will influence one by Plath and, and vice versa. And, you know, they gave an interview on the BBC and they talked about their relationship as poets. The the title of the poem was Poets in Partnership. Hmm. And it's a a fascinating thing to listen to because you can tell there's a a bit of, not rivalry, but at one point, the commentator, Owen Leeming, he says, you know, he sort of writes in a similar way. And Plath gets very annoyed when he says this. And she says, no, no, we don't write in a similar way. Not at all. In fact, I recently wrote a poem about a pig named Sow, and Ted wrote a poem about a pig, which is about a pig being butchered. And mine is about this <laughs> wonderful, <laughs> brooding mother mother pig with her piglets. And so she, she gives this example of how different they are. Yeah. But but I think Ted was in the beginning really pushing her to go bolder. You know, to just write in this more. I don't know if violent is the right word, but to kind of break through, I think, what he thought of as perhaps a feminine kind of primness. Yeah. And to write in a quote-unquote stronger voice. 
Yeah. And uh, which, you know, she eventually, when she published Ariel, <laughs> when right, she wrote the Ariel right. poems, she, she went farther even than Ted did. And um, yet there, there does voice. seem to have been this, this thing. It reminds me of uh, what Ezra Pound said after he met Elliot, where he said, I'm astonished that you came to all this independently of me. Like you came to the same place, <laughs> yeah. you know, you were reading the same things. And it, it, he yeah. felt like he was kind of affirmed because it was like he was not yeah. just uh, steering the ship in, in the direction, you know, all on his own. But somebody else that he could admire was also liking the same things. I mean, Plath and Hughes, they seem to have shared poets that they liked in common and and ideas that they had in common and there seems to at least in, early in the relationship that seems to have taken them quite a quite a ways in their poetry and in their I guess their love and their relationship that they felt like they were part of a admiration society of poetry. Yeah, they were in a way I sort of describe it as um they were playing for the same team. Yeah. Um right. you know, early on. This is before things got bad in the marriage. I'm talking the first three years or so, when it was quite idyllic. They were out to shock British poetry out of submission. And I sometimes I think of it almost like punk rock. Like mm. they were mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. they they were this unit and they wanted to kind of shock and uh shock and awe and uh there was a British poetry anthology published in the early 60s called The New Poetry. And in the introduction, Al Alvarez, who was friends with both Plath and Hughes, he talks about how modern British poets need to break away from this poetry of gentility, right, and, and write something bolder. And, and they needed to bear witness to things like the Holocaust and, and the nuclear bomb. And, and so he felt like poets were not addressing these kind of really dark aspects of the culture. And and Plath and Hughes, I think, picked up that mantle. They tried to write poems that, that were not genteel. Yeah. Um, and I almost, you know, you mentioned Lennon and, and McCartney, and I think about uh, Courtney Love and Kurt Cobain mm, yeah. in a similar kind of way. And I'm not a, a music scholar, so I, I probably wouldn't dare to write about them. But I, 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 there are some parallels, I think. Yeah, right. <laughs> Plath and Hughes there. And just this urge to to write a new kind of poetry yeah um that they they thought would be more honest i think yeah i saw this amazing documentary about uh, Fleetwood Mac and in particular Lindsey Buckingham and and Stevie Nicks and he was saying how they had kind of a different relationship I guess where mm. Stevie was sort of a, a poet who could come in with ideas for a song but then Lindsey was more of a musician who could really do the arrangement and the, the background vocals and the, the accompaniment and he had this uh, so he was saying this sort of in sorrow but he said I just know how to make her song sound good. And, <laughs> you know, so even yeah. after they were going through the rockiest points of their relationship, he would feel like, oh, you know, do I have to do this for her? But <laughs> I know I can and I know what this song needs. And so he, he <laughs> yeah. would do it. And they just had such a uh, relationship. It, it, it is too bad that everything happened the way that they did with, with Sylvia and Ted. I feel like we sort of lost out on what it would have been like to see the two of them, you know, separate and mm-hmm. come back together and kind of grow old together. It's really a, a tragedy for poetry that, that everything went the way that it did. Yes. Yeah. I mean, she's like Keats in yeah. that sense. Right. You know, what, what, would have, what would have been? Yeah. Okay. So your book... Uh, there is a something on the cover that I wanted to ask you about, and it mentions that 
There is a refusal to read Platt's work as if her every act was a harbinger of her tragic fate. And we all know how the story ends. And mm. I, I'm guessing that it's it's hard for a, a biographer to resist that tendency to kind of point it toward the early death and the, mm. the, the depression and, the, you know, that would overwhelm her. And how were you able to carve that out for yourself so that we see Sylvia's life as she lived it, not knowing how the end was going to happen rather than uh, with the benefit of hindsight? Yes, I I didn't want to make the the struggles with mental illness and the suicide attempt and the eventual suicide the center of mm. the story because mm-hmm. it, the question that I had that propelled me through the writing of this book was how did Sylvia Plath become the writer that she became? Mm-hmm. That was the question. I mean, that was it. That was the thing I wanted to answer. And that's what I returned to on every page. Of course, I need, I knew I needed to address all of this because she did suffer from severe depression, right? right. Depression killed her. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to pretend none of that happened obviously or whitewash it. Yeah. So it's just, I was, it was very difficult to be honest, because I felt like I was threading this needle. I didn't want to minimize the effect depression had on her life and, and all, you know, her experiences with the psychiatrists, which were quite grim. I don't think she was well served by mid-century psychiatry, mm-hmm. even, even though, you know, they had good intentions, but um, I think she might've been made worse by you know, some of the treatments. And so, yeah, it was just a, a matter of trying to balance out the story, but always centering her, her writing, I think first and her desire to become a poet. Right. And to, yeah make that the, <laughs> the theme. When we originally set up this interview, we've had kind of a delay here. When we originally set this up, I was going to say that it was a perfect book for the holidays. And I'm going to <laughs> adjust that and say that it's a perfect book for the beach. It's the kind of book I like to take to the beach anyway. So as we yeah. head into uh, spring and summer here, I hope listeners will check it out. Uh, it's a wonderful book. Red Comet, The Short and Blazing Art of Sylvia Plath. Heather Clark, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you for having me. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Wasn't that great? My thanks to Heather Clark for joining me, and my thanks to you, dear listeners, for joining me and for continuing to support the History of Literature podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.